Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 12. And I just want to say a little something before we get into the text this morning. Um, you know, here's the thing. Sometimes when we come to texts like this, right, where it's just where we have these series of commands, a series of, of exhortations that come from the pen of the Apostle Paul, it's sometimes very easy for us to kind of, you know, not regard them with the same weight, perhaps, that we do Romans chapter 8 or Romans chapter 6 or Romans chapter 3, right? Because Romans chapter 3 and chapter 6 and chapter 8, they're just so, they're theological bombshells, right? And, and this is just kind of like a list of things we're supposed to do. And it's not as interesting, maybe, you know? And I'm not saying that that's how all of y'all are feeling. I'm just saying there's a tendency, there's a, there's a temptation to kind of approach it in that way. And, and I want us to make sure that, that we war against that in our hearts. And here's why. Right? These, these series of commandments that Paul, or in directions that Paul gives to us in Romans chapter 12 and starting in verse 9, verse 21 through verse 21, like, these are not small things. I want us to understand that these are very important commands that he gives. And our obedience to them either gives proof to or exposes the lie of our profession of faith in Christ. You hearing me? How we obey these commands really does describe the reality and the position of our soul's before the living God. And here's why I'm saying that. We all know we will stand up and we will confess. We'd go to death preaching that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, with no addition of human works whatsoever. Right? Amen. Right? But salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, does not mean there are no works associated with salvation. And that's one of the great complaints in society against salvation by grace. Because people think that gives you a license then to live however you want to and just claim, well, I believe in Jesus and everything's good to go. But we know that true faith in Christ leads to a changed life, right? It change, it leads to a transformation of our lives. It must because at the core of salvation is regeneration, right? Where you become a new creature in Christ. Where the old has passed away and the new has come and it necessarily transforms your desires, your longings, your wants and your response to the commands of God, the word of God, the commands of God are no longer burdensome to you, right? But they are welcome because they, they give you an avenue to express the lordship of Christ in your life, right? I've said to you, I've said this to you before. If you find the commandments of God burdensome, you need to check yourself. Right? And so when we come to this, this text this morning, right? When we come to this passage in Romans chapter 12, here we are yet again. Paul saying, here are the things that need to define you as a Christian. And if they don't, you need to figure out why. Either you're walking in disobedience or you're not truly saved. That's really what it's about. He's giving us this mark of being a Christian. The mark of being a genuine believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how your life looks. This is how it ought to look. This is what you should strive for. This is what God empowers by His Spirit. 
So let's stand together and let's read these words together. And we're going to go back to to verse 1 of chapter 12 and we'll read all the way through the end of verse 10. This is the word of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your word is, is, are the words of truth. When we read scripture, Lord God, we are reading the very word of God. And it bears the weight and, 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 the, and the might of, of Almighty God Himself. Lord, when you speak to us through your word, you expect us to hear, to listen, and to obey. You have the right to expect that because you are the sovereign God and all authority belongs to you. And every one of us, Lord God, lives only by your grace. Every breath we take is by your grace. Every heartbeat we experience is by your grace. The function of our bodies in a, in a, in a beneficial way, it's by your grace. Every day we have a gift of your grace. Every moment of joy, a gift of your grace. Every good gift comes down from the Father in heaven with whom there is no variableness, no shadow of turning. You are the immutable, unchanging, faithful, glorious, and awesome God. And we confess, Father, that you have the right to command us. And so as we come to this text this morning, help us to realize these are not the words of Paul the Apostle alone. These are the very words of the living God. These are words inspired by you. And so I pray that we will come with an earnest desire to understand them. Lord God, with an earnest desire to obey them. And with an earnest desire to see them practiced in this body. So Father, help us now. As we draw near to you, open our minds and open our hearts. And Father, help us to be honest about ourselves in light of the words that we are reading. Father God, I pray that you would encourage those of us who are walking in such a manner as we are, we are trying to show honor to, to one another and, and, and give us the strength to do it. And for those, Father God, who are not doing it, I pray you'd bring us to repentance and to confession and that, Lord God, we would come before you and we would ask your grace and your strength to do what you command us to do. 
Father, command what you will. And Father, give grace and strength for what you command. Bless us now as we dig into your word together. Make me to be filled with your Holy Spirit. Help me to preach your word in faithfulness and in accuracy. And Lord God, may you be exalted and magnified in the presence of your people today through the preaching of your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, beloved, last week we looked at this first part of the verse, right? Love one another with a brotherly love. And we said last week, that's one of the chief marks, right, of being a genuine Christian that Paul is describing here, right? He's giving to us in this section the genuine marks of what it means to be a true believer, right? He, he began, first of all, with genuine love for God and then describes how that's to take place by hating what's evil and clinging to what is good. And as for this brotherly affection that is to characterize our interaction with one another, it's a love that's rooted in our common bond in Christ, right? In the fact that we are, you know, a family together in the Lord. And as we talked about last week, being the children of God by His saving grace, we are intimately related to one another because, and because we are, God's command for us to love one another with a love of faithfulness and warmth and affection should be readily received by us. We should say yes and amen. That makes complete sense. I should truly love my brothers and my sisters in Christ with a love and an affection that is marked by devotion and loyalty and constancy and commitment and allegiance and warmth and affection, right? And we saw the scripture is filled with, it is replete with references to the church in the language of family, right? If you're born again, You are in the greatest family that you could ever be a part of. We share in the same father, right? Father God. We, we share the same elder brother who's the Lord Jesus Christ. We're, we are born of the same blood, the blood of our Redeemer, and we are indwelt by the same Holy Spirit, right? And so what unites us all is far greater, far more powerful than anything that could possibly divide us, right? Right? We belong to the family of God. And that family is to be characterized by devotion and real love towards one another that is qualitatively different from our love for those who are outside the body of Christ, right? In fact, we made the point, and and I can bear this to be true, that my love for my brothers and sisters in Christ far exceeds my love for my brothers in the flesh who do not know Christ. There's a uniqueness to our relationship that is not earthbound. We belong to the family of God. And so we are to love one another with a brotherly affection. And this next command that we're going to look at this morning flows supernaturally from that command. God commands us through Paul to outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. Love one another and make it practical. Outdo one another in showing honor. In fact, that's the connection here. It's not evident 
in, in, in the English text, but it's very evident in the Greek text. Do you remember that back when we were looking at the idea of letting our love be genuine, our love for Almighty God, for the Lord God, letting it be genuine, and then Paul described using a participle phrase, the very way that that should be displayed literally in the Greek, by abhorring evil and holding fast to what is good. He's doing the same thing here. He's doing the same thing here. The participle phrase describes one way in which our love, you know, our love for God should be demonstrated by abhorring evil and holding fast to what is good. And, and he does the same thing here. As he moves to our relationships with one another in the body of Christ, he says, you know, I want you to love one another with a brotherly affection. Here's how you do it. You do it by outdoing one another and showing honor. That's one of the ways that you do it. In other words, here's what he's getting at. If you say that you love your brother and you don't make it a practice to show him honor, then your words are empty of truth. Your words are, 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 are not true. So what does it mean? What does it mean to be outdoing one another and showing honor? What does that mean? Well, here's what it means. That word that's translated here as outdo is a word that means to go before or to strive to win the race or to outrun somebody. That's the idea here. It describes doing something with eagerness, doing something, you know, you know, with, with determination, taking the lead in the active pursuit of a certain goal, right? And in this case, it's showing honor to one another. Now, that word honor is an important word. That word honor is a very interesting word in Greek. It has the idea of showing value, of showing worth, of assigning value and prizing one another to the level which we ought. It is the idea of showing genuine appreciation and regard for somebody. Showing genuine respect to one another. Be quick to, to serve one another and to be deliberate in showing esteem for one another in the family of God. The idea is you gladly look for ways to edify and to upbuild and to encourage and to exhort and to make much of your brothers and your sisters in Christ and little of yourself. That's important. And it's important for us to understand that Paul's not commanding here hypocrisy, okay? He's not commanding hypocrisy. In other words, he's not commanding here empty flattery or manipulation. You know what that's like, right? You know people who have flattered you for their own, for their own benefit, right? Anybody know people like that? Well, give it some time. You'll meet one, right? We know people like that. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about empty praise either, where you heap praise on somebody and they know, they know that you're just full of it. Because what they're saying about you isn't remotely true, right? I've been in that sort of situation before where people have like heaped praise upon me and the stuff they were saying was like so far removed from reality. It was like, you're just lying, right? It's not that. It's not giving honor to somebody in order to get honor back, right? Like the tribes on social media that do that. You know what I'm talking about, right? Some girl will put up a picture, a, a highly airbrushed picture. One that is remarkably airbrushed. So much so often, sometimes they'll race their own nostrils trying to make themselves look pretty. 
right? And then somebody replies with the predictable. Oh, you're so pretty. And then what does she say back? No, you are. And then she says back, no, no, you are. Oh, no, you are. And they do it ad nauseum, right? Here's a suggestion, man. Just get off social media and get a dog. You know, they love you no matter what. They make you feel good even if you're not a very nice human being. Like, really? It's not what he's talking about here at all. What he's talking about here is this. He's talking about the kind of showing honor to one another that requires self-forgetfulness. The showing of honor to one another that requires an others-oriented, others-blessing perspective that you're not even concerned about yourself. It's, it's not rooted in false flattery, but it's actually rooted in reality. It's honoring someone as one made in the image of God and redeemed by the blood of Christ. It's to look for and to honor and show respect and appreciation for real evidences, for real character in actions that, that reflect the work of grace that God has done in your brother or your sister's life, right? In fact, it's the polar opposite of envy and jealousy and covetousness and selfish pride and self-promotion. In fact, here's the deal. You can't honor someone in the way that you should when those things, envy and jealousy and covetousness and selfish pride and self-promotion are present in your heart. You can't do it. You can't do it. The call to honor others is a call to self-forgetfulness. What Paul is describing here is, is a brotherly affection that eagerly seeks out and rejoices in and honors the virtues of other believers. Robert Haldane says, while the men of the world are seeking to outstrip each other in everything that respects ambition... Christians are to refrain from following their example, but they are permitted and they are enjoined, that's a word that means instructed or commanded, to strive with one another in the indication of mutual respect. I find that very interesting, don't you? That, you know, an atmosphere of brotherly love ought to preclude striving and straining with one another and and competition with one another except in this area of showing honor to one another right that's where we ought to be competing to show honor to one another rather than competing for supremacy rather than competing for honor and admiration for acclaim and for applause instead we're to strive to excel in showing honor to our brothers and our sisters in christ before ourselves that's the whole idea here again it's about self-forgetfulness it's about not regarding yourself as supremely important in reference to everyone else. Having to always get your way. Having to always, you know, everybody else bow down to your whim. It means to be more concerned about showing honor than to get it. Rather than competing for supremacy, rather than competing for honor and admiration and for acclaim and applause, instead, we're to strive to excel in showing honor to our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
It means take the initiative in honoring other people and not wait to see if they honor and respect you first. Paul's saying, don't pour out your energy in seeing how you can be honored, but rather in how you can honor another. Now I want you to hear me when I say this. This would have come like, like a thunderclap to the social norms in Rome. This would have shattered the social norms that the Roman Christians were used to. To, to first century Romans, honor was considered a rightful possession based upon your sex. You were a male. Based upon your social status. You were important amongst others and based upon your accomplishments. And yet the church in Rome had within it men and women, masters and slaves, adults and children, the influential and the accomplished, and the commoners. So men then were being called upon to show honor to women. And masters were being called upon to honor their slaves. And adults were being called upon to honor children. And the influential were being called upon to honor the common folk. It was nothing less than a societal revolution within the church. So profound are the consequences of new life together in Christ. In fact, it is no less massively countercultural in our own world where people are continuously and relentlessly seeking to advance themselves at the expense of others, competing to promote themselves, competing to establish their brand, right? And it's not just in the world, it's in the church, man. In the society where, I mean, this blows me away. If I had told my grandfather that this was an actual you know, occupation, back when he was alive, I would have said, one day there's going to be an occupation in our culture that's going to be known as an influencer. He would have looked at me like I'd lost my ever-living mind. Like he would have looked at me like I was nuts. And yet here we are. We're in a society where being an influencer... We're seeking honor from everybody and trying to take the lead and, yo, follow me in my influentialness. Is astonishingly considered to be a real and a desirable profession. Pray tell, what special skills does being an influencer require? I mean, it's like being a welder. Like being a doctor, businessman. I mean, what do you need to do to be an influencer? I, I influence people. I'm an influencer. Go back to school, bro. You need a real job. I mean, kudos to whoever discovered how to monetize overactive human egos, but man, come on. Point is this. Determining to honor one another from a heart of brotherly love deals a death blow to the striving and the straining and the envy and the sinful ambition that 
marks the fallen human condition, right? It leads to mutual respect. It leads to, you know, contentment. It leads to unity and concrete expressions of real love within the body of Christ. But this virtue, this honoring one another, it does not come naturally. It's a supernatural one. And this kind of honor, springing from brotherly love, cannot be a reality, listen to me, apart from two vital necessities. You know what they are? Gospel humility and a vibrant relationship with God. Gospel humility and a vibrant relationship with God. Listen, really loving one another with brotherly love. And being freed to honor one another as we should are categorically, those two things are categorically impossible apart from humility that proceeds from a proper understanding of the gospel and also a vibrant growing relationship with the Lord. Let me explain. I want you to think about this for a second. Beloved, the truth of the gospel ought to fashion in our hearts a true humility, shouldn't it? Shouldn't it? It ought to create great thanksgiving, but at the same time, it ought to make us say, who am I that God would grace me like that? Who am I that I would receive such honor from Almighty God? If we're Christians, here's the sobering truth about you and me. Christ loved you, and He died for you, and He forgave you, and He accepted you, and He justified you, and He gave you eternal life, and made you a joint heir with Him when you deserved hell. When you deserved destruction. When you deserved humiliation. When you deserved eternal condemnation in hell. It's not that you didn't deserve anything. It's that you deserved that. God loved you. Christ loved you, died for you, forgave you when you deserved the exact opposite and when he owed you nothing. He bestowed on you the honor of being a child of God. Listen to me, not because you were worthy of such a title and not because, you know, you were the top performer among fallen humanity. It's not that you were the best of the worst. Like, like that's some kind of great honor anyway. It's not that. He saved you when you were worthy only of condemnation, when you were weak and ungodly and an enemy of God. Like Paul told us earlier in Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6, for when we were still, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to even to die. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, By the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Now that's you and me, and that's all of us who are in Christ. None of us is any better than anybody else. Doesn't matter what your background was, doesn't matter what your ethnicity is, it doesn't matter what your bank account says, it doesn't matter, you know, how well you did in school, it doesn't matter how nice and perfect and odor free your family is. None of us is any better than anybody else. And we ought to marvel that we're Christians at all. 
you realize it's not just for the heinous things that Christ died. Christ died for your supposed righteousness that is really filthy rags. None of us, none of us has any claim to a higher rung on the ladder than anybody else in this church. Right? We're not better than anybody else. God has been gracious to each one of us who deserved only judgment. And if God has been so gracious to us, if He has honored us in such a remarkable way that He would take us, from the garbage heap of sin and make us His own children. If He would honor us in such a remarkable way by His grace, honoring each other should not be an overwhelming burden but a joy, shouldn't it? The gospel ought to humble us and put us in the place to honor other people. And let me just say one other thing. Let me just say one other thing before we look at the, the, the vibrant relationship thing. I, we need to understand something that is foreign to the mindset of fallen humanity. Honoring one another, beloved, is not a zero-sum game any more than God's grace is a zero-sum game. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean by that. It's this thought that if I honor you, then somehow I'm taking away from the big pie of honor a piece that I might otherwise have. That if I honor you, somehow I'm missing out on honor that I might get. And so the less I honor you, the more that I might be honored. It's just not the case. In fact, that just shows a greedy, selfish mindset, doesn't it? It's not the case. There's not a finite amount of honor and respect to go around in a church any more than there's a finite amount of God's grace for his people to enjoy. The necessary humility and the willingness to honor and serve others with our words and our deeds. Listen, it comes from right here. It comes from being overwhelmed by God's grace to a wretch like us. Gratitude for saving grace in Christ and sustaining grace for our sanctification in the present and the promise of future grace. And when we're amazed and we're overwhelmed by the grace of God to us and the great honor that, he is, that we have received from men to be called the children of God, then we will be energized to graciously honor one another. Beloved, we need gospel humility. If you find in your heart that you have a hard time honoring someone, you have a hard time seeing somebody preferred before you, you have a hard time seeing someone applauded for what they've done truly or or applauded for the, the grace that God has given in their lives and the fruit of that grace, man, if you've got a problem with that, I would say to you one of the first things that you may have a problem with is a lack of humility. Your pride's a problem. But then moreover, in order to really honor one another, we must have a vibrant relationship with God. What do I mean by that? Let me just ask you a question. You ever wondered why it is that some people in the church are glad to honor others and for some it's like pulling teeth? You ever wonder why? Like why is it that some people are glad to honor other people and other people it looks like they just sucked on a lemon? They can't stand it. Why is that? For some, it's just as simple as they're not really born again. Because trying to fake the fruit of being born again is a miserable endeavor, right? So for some people, it's just because they're not really born again, right? But, you know, because this virtue, right? Again, honoring one another doesn't come naturally. It's a supernatural virtue. But here's the deal. The assumption here that Paul is making is, is that we are in Christ, right? So what's the issue for those people? What is the issue for those that 
that are in Christ, but they just they have a hard time honoring other people. I would say this. I would say it's this. To consistently show honor to other people, our relationship to God must be right. In other words, we've got to have a vibrant and a growing relationship to the Lord. In other words, here's the deal. If you're not honoring God, if we're not honoring God as we should, if He doesn't hold primacy in our hearts, if we aren't communing with Him, if we're not, you know, if our walk with Him is inconsistent, if our walk with Him is lacking, so will be this virtue of honoring others in the body of Christ. In fact, here's, here's the truth. You can tell, you can often tell the state of a Christian's walk with his Lord by how he or she treats other people. True or false? It's true, isn't it? You know it's true. So what Paul tells us the beginning here. Look, you need to have a vibrant relationship with the Lord. Here's what that means. At the very beginning of chapter 12, he, pre- he tells us, present yourself as a living sacrifice. Everything that you are. Die to yourself, to your old way of living and thinking, and be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you'll be able to do the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. Apart from that, that command, this command is impossible to consistently obey. Our walk with the Lord must be right if we're ever going to rightly relate to our brothers and sisters in Christ. We've got to be continually learning Christ, learning what it means to walk like Christ. Apostle John said it. He said First 1 John chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is what? A liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. We've said this before. Christ is our Savior, yes, but He's not only our Savior, He's our standard as well, right? When you're in Christ, He's your standard. And He's our standard for this honoring one another. Paul presents... The Lord Jesus Christ, as the standard who models for us the mindset of humility and honoring others as we should, and he does it in the book of Philippians, in a very memorable, notable passage. And I want you to turn there. I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 2 right now. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. I want to hear the pages rustling. I like that sound. I want you to notice how Paul begins this section. First of all, he starts by affirming the great blessings that, that come from being in Christ, right? Look what he says in verses 1 and 2. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, right? Now, Paul mentions these things in a manner here that 
that suggests to us that they should be all be the obvious experience, the obvious parts of a Christian's experience. In other words, in other words, he's saying this, you know, you know, if there's any encouragement in Christ and if there's any comfort from all of he's saying that in the same way that we might say, if fire is heart, hot, and if night is dark, and you know, if water is wet, well, the answer to that is, of course, all of those things are true, right? And that's what, how Paul is presenting that here. Each of these things, encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, affection, sympathy, that's the mutual experience of everyone in Christ together, or it ought to be, right? That's what he's getting at. And he says, that being the case then, be of the same mind and have the same love and be in full accord with one another. And together, those words are speaking of the same idea, that, that we are each to have a deep, abiding, internal unity with one another. And then he gets down to brass tacks. In other words, here's how that looks. He says in verses 3 and 4, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of of others. Don't do anything from selfish ambition. Don't do anything to exalt and magnify yourself and promote yourself among the brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't do anything out of a heart of, you know, vain glory or self-exaltation. That's the idea of conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And I don't want you to miss the point here. Okay? The issue here is not what others are or are not intrinsically. Rather, the issue is what you count them to be. Do you see that? You count other people more more significant than yourself. Count them as more important. Count them as worthy of greater honor. Count them as worthy of words and deeds that bless them. Don't be self-consumed. Rather, look out for others And look to Christ as your standard. Do it as Christ did it. And then he says this in verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, this is the mindset that's already yours if you're in Christ. And you need to cultivate it. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is God, okay? Who who has a glory about himself, a divine glory that is both substantive and real. It's not imaginary. It's not self-ascribed. It's a glory that is true and real. He did not cling to his rights to equality with God. He didn't stand on his rights. He didn't say, well, uh, you know, I deserve to be fully and completely honored at all times. And so, therefore, I am not willing to do anything that might, be re- that might require of me humiliation 
in order to redeem a people who aren't worth it, quite frankly. That's not the heart of Christ. He didn't cling to his rights to equality with God. For our sake, he took to himself the form of a servant. He condescended to be born as a man, which is a huge condescension. He humbled himself to the death of the cross so that we could be saved. Here's what Paul's getting at. He laid aside his true rights to honor in order to give eternal life to the dishonorable. And if he being God was willing to do so, should we not also be willing to lay down our perceived rights that we might honor one another? He's saying, man, look at Jesus and look at yourself. Who is infinitely worthy of honor? You are him. If he was willing to be humiliated for your good so that you, the dishonorable, might be saved, then you know what? You need to be willing to do as he did. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Do nothing from conceit. In humility, count other people more significant than yourself. Look after the interests of others. Because Jesus did for you. Right? You seeing it? So how do we practically honor one another? How do we really do this? What's, what do we, let's get down to it. What does it look like to actually practically honor one another? Listen, there are untold ways that we can honor one another in the body of Christ. One way we create a culture of honor in the church is by actually showing sincere gratitude for people's kindness and service and expressions of love and generosity rather than taking things for granted or acting as if, well, of course I am worthy of that, that act of kindness or that expression of love or that, that bit of service. Actually being grateful to somebody and expressing it to them. That's one way we create a culture of honor. We demonstrate honor by, by speaking words of encouragement and exhortation to one another, right? By looking for ways to speak words of life to each other. Now, let's just be honest, dudes especially. We're really good at, at, at kind of like cutting each other down, right? That's our love language. Let me tell a joke that cuts you down in front of the other guys, right? Yeah, one guy's admitting it. Thank you. That seems cool, and sometimes it is. But you know what? We need to have a culture of honor where we actually speak good things about one another. Things that are true, not made up, but good things about one another. Right? We demonstrate honor by speaking words of encouragement and exhortation. We demonstrate honor by... by for one another when we respect one another as image bearers of God. We show honor for one another when when we disagree, we do it in a respectable manner. We show honor to one another by recognizing and celebrating one another's unique gifts and personalities and calling. We create a culture of honor. When we defer to one another and make room for people to use their gifts in the body, right? When we acknowledge their contributions, when we speak, you know, speak it to them and, and to others, we show honor when we are quick to look for the good in one another. We show honor through acts of service, right? 
by having somebody over for a meal or making a meal for somebody or offering to watch someone's kids so their parents might have a much-needed night for themselves. Engaging in mutual conversations and hearing other people. Not talking at people, talking to them. Hearing their story. Asking how we might pray for them. And then doing it. And then checking up with them. We do it by visiting the sick. By providing for physical needs when it's within our power to do so. There are a multitude of ways that we can honor one another. We just need to have a heart and eyes to both desire and see and then do it. But I'll say this. There are a multitude of ways to honor one another, but to really do so requires four bedrock principles that without them, there's no way you can show anybody honor. Here they are. You ready? Number one, if we're going to really honor one another, we must be committed to speaking the truth to one another in all things. You hearing me? In other words, don't lie to one another. Because to lie to one another is to dishonor one another. It's to say, you know what? I don't really value you enough to tell you the truth. I don't value enough to be honest and forthright. I don't really value enough to, you know, tell you the truth. We must, as believers and members together of one another, do as Paul commanded and be speaking the truth in love so that we grow up in every way into Him who is the head, that is, into Christ, right? we got to be open and honest with one another. We need not to be so self-protective all the time. We need to be honest with one another and we must unfailingly speak the Word of God to one another. And sometimes, you know what? That's challenging and that's difficult. And much more than you might think. But if we love one another, and we value one another, we need to speak the truth to one another in all things, right? And that means that honoring one another as a brother or a sister in Christ may actually mean confronting and correcting one another for their good. But we do it with grace and kindness. We do it with with. You know, expectation that they're going to be receptive. We do it patiently desiring to win a brother or a sister and to lead them to repentance and to an unstained walk with God. Beloved, in other words, here's the bottom line. There's no real honoring of one another without a commitment to speaking the truth to one another. Right? Second is this. An essential part of honoring one another is to highly regard one another with our speech. Both when we are with one another... And when we're not, when we're not, we need to be careful about our speech with each other. We need to speak in ways that are edifying. We need to be gracious and kind, right? I mentioned earlier, not always cracking jokes at the other's expense or speaking in a disparaging way, right? Our, our, our mouths ought to be a fountain of life for our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? In the tongue, there's the power of, of life and death. Our tongues toward one another ought to be the power of life. You with me? Moreover, when we're not with one another, we've got to guard ourselves against gossip and slander. 
We've got to be careful to paint one another in a positive light, to speak in a way that shows esteem and respect for our spiritual siblings. As people that are that claim to follow Christ, we're called to honor one another, to value one another, to lift one another up and edify one another, even when we're not in the same room. You know how, how you let your guard down when someone's not around? Don't do it. The psalmist says that the one who's pleasing to God is the one who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Psalm 15.3. Third, it's essential that we take each other at our word. We're to trust one another, right? And by doing so, we give each other honor and respect. You know how laborious it can be sometimes. When perhaps you confess your love to somebody. And then they demand a thousand proofs of your love. And we do that with people sometimes. Somebody tells us the truth. And we're not content with yes and no. We want vows. We want swear on your mother's grave kind of stupidity. We trust one another. We give each other honor and respect. Now you might think, well, you know what? I don't want to be gullible. Well, neither do I. But neither do I want to be distrusting and suspicious and always doubting people either. You can't have a relationship of respect and honor when that's the case. Will you get burned sometimes? Yes, you will. Yes, you will. It's inevitable. But you know what you do in those cases? You trust God to handle it. You trust God to handle it. And you don't yourself become closed off from everybody because someone you trusted was a liar. And then last thing is this. If we're to have a culture of honor in our church, bedrock principle number four is this. Each one of us needs to be a person of our word, right? Man, if you say it, do it. If you make a promise, fulfill it. Your word needs to be, our word needs to be our bond. We got to keep our promises. The psalmist puts it like this. He says, you know what? We are to be those who swear to our own hurt and do not change. In other words, when you make a promise, you do it. Even if when you made the promise, you didn't realize how difficult it would be to keep it. Keep your promise. Hold to your word. Because it's essential to really honoring other people. When you make a promise and break it, you're saying, you know what, you're not as important as I am. Something more important came up and you'll just have to live with it. And I'll tell you what happens in a a church when we look for ways to honor others first. You know what it will do? It will kill the complaint. And you've heard it. It will kill the complaints of nobody loves me. Nobody cares about me. Nobody thinks about me. You've heard it. And why? 
Why does it, why does it kill those complaints? Here's why. Because when you seek to outdo one another in showing honor, the focus becomes upon, on, becomes upon whom you can love, right? Whom you can serve, whom you can honor, right? Right? All of a sudden, the issue is not, well, I'm not getting honor in the juice that I deserve. I need to go find a church that will honor me. Good luck. It becomes about, man, how do I show my sincere love for my brothers and sisters in Christ by serving them? How can I do that? It becomes not about you at all. It becomes about honoring others. And when you're freed to do that, can I tell you what? The rest takes care of itself. It does. People who actively, faithfully, from a heart of brotherly love, look to honor their brothers and sisters in Christ. Those complaints don't come out of their mouths. Because they're others oriented, not on themselves. It's like the old adage, you know, to have a friend, you must be what? Friendly. Right? I don't have any friends. Look in the mirror. No, really. So here's the question. Does this really matter? I mean, this seems like on the sliding scales of commandments, this seems like pretty insignificant, right? I mean, does this really matter? Like if we're going to not do well in one area, isn't this one of those ones that maybe we don't do so well in, but it doesn't really matter? And the answer to that is, it matters very much. And here's why. First of all, when we love and honor one another, we put on display the truth of our new nature in Christ and the power of the gospel to transform lowly sinners into saints. You know where the power of the gospel is most clearly seen? It's not always in reforming outward actions that you can quantify. The reforming, transforming work of the gospel is most often seen most powerfully in the transformation of attitudes that can be faked or remain hidden. When we seek to honor others rather than seeking to honor ourselves, it demonstrates the grace of God has done its good work in calling us out of darkness and into God's glorious light. It definitively demonstrates that we're not what we once were. Not just that we've modified our behavior, but that we no longer live according to the mindset of the world. And we've been freed by the gospel to love God and love our brothers and sisters in Christ with a real, solid, concrete love, right? Second, when we love and honor one another, we strengthen and encourage each other in a powerful and a necessary way. Hey, in case you haven't noticed, this world is becoming increasingly hostile and disparaging of true Christians. Have you noticed? And we've got to be considering how to stir one another up to loving good works and not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as we see the day drawing near. One of the chief ways of encouraging one another is by honoring one another in the body of Christ. Why? Because when we honor one another, we spur one another on. When somebody, you know, look... 
there's, a, there's an infinite difference between somebody saying to me, man, you're a crummy preacher. And, man, that was a good sermon today. One of those isn't very tasteful. And it's kind of discouraging. Well, that stunk. So do you. No, right? (laughs) But the other one is very encouraging, isn't it? Right? Like, you know this. Here's the truth. Like, I've seen this in coaching. Like, the kids that respond the best in coaching are the ones that where you find one thing they can do well, and you praise that, and you encourage in them other things that they must get better in, and you, you know, you kind of hold a firm hand with them, and you'll be amazed how, mu- how much better kids become and how willing they become by the end of the year to run through a wall for the coach. I realized, when I was coaching little kids, I realized I had the power with children to incite a small rebellion or riot. I'm not saying we do that here. But what I am saying is, one of the best ways that we spur one another on is by encouraging one another and honoring one another as we should. Like, I'm just going to be honest. How many of you noticed today that Shane Parks was playing drums? Like, he's like third string on the drum lineup. But it was great. And I'm not saying that as an empty compliment or flattery so that afterwards he's going to, that was a great sermon, brother, because I mentioned him. That's not it. But it's just a reality. Like, be grateful. Third thing is this. We saw earlier in, in Philippians 2, when we love and honor one another, we display the glory of Christ and reflect his own character, right? Isn't that what we're here to do? Reflect the character of Christ? Isn't that what we're supposed to be? Look, if, if, if it was all just about saving us and getting us to heaven, God would have translated us into heaven at the moment we believed. But he didn't do that, did he? He left us here so that we can reflect the character of Christ. That's why, remember when the Lord, when the Lord said to his disciples as they were wrangling for honor amongst themselves? Remember that? And they were always doing that. I think it was when James and John were fighting. I think they'd sent their mom. You know, they wanted to have this place at the right hand of, in the left hand of the Lord Jesus when he came into his kingdom, you know. And Jesus says to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now, why does he say that? He says, well, because that's true of me. He says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then the fourth thing is this. Fourth reason why this matters is this. Last one. When we love and honor one another, we put the power of the gospel on display in a cynical world. And this cynical world desperately needs to see the power of the gospel, right? When people in this world, and you run into them, I run into them, decry the power of the gospel and they kind of mock, you know, what we believe. How powerful is it to point to the fellowship of the saints and say, well, what human philosophy leads 
to this kind of loving and mutually honoring fellowship that is rooted in the truth. What do you have that compares? I've heard stupid things. Well, the bar. If you listen to country music, you would think the bar is church, I guess. But here's the truth. There might be some counterfeits in this world that seem to have the same fellowship. That seem to show the same honor. But they're really rooted in falsehood and in the love of sin. And that's just the facts. They're diminishing returns. They're diminishing returns. Beloved, when you magnify Christ by loving Christians affectionately and doing, outdoing each other and showing honor, we're letting the light of the gospel shine in the darkness. And Jesus said to let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. We live in a world that's filled with broken relationships. We live in a world where people expend a great deal of energy seeking to be honored and to be valued and be, to be significant. People that will humiliate themselves for the feeling of being honored. And they play a sad game of diminishing returns. As those who've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, who have received the undeserved honor of being made the children of God, let us be committed. Let us be committed to loving one another with a brotherly love and seeking to outdo one another and showing honor so that Christ might be glorified and so that the gospel might be shown to be the truth. Can something that simple like this commandment. Can that impact somebody's soul powerfully? Yeah. It can make all the difference in the world. Let's pray together. Father, we know. We know, Lord God, that As Christians, Father, you have called us to manifest genuinely Christ-like behavior by the dependence on the Holy Spirit who lives within us and motivated by a love for the glory and the honor of you and motivated by our love and our desire to show honor to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Father, I pray that you would teach us, each one of us, exactly what that looks like. I pray, Father, that as we've heard these words and, Father, as, we've, as we consider them, that you might apply them powerfully in the very areas in which we need them to be applied in our hearts and lives. Father, I pray that if it is our pattern to desire to to show honor and to encourage and to uplift and to serve one another, that we would do so more abundantly and we do so from a, a proper heart motive, proper heart perspective. And Lord, if we're lacking in this, either because we just haven't even thought about it or because it seems like some skin off our own nose, I pray that you would convict us today
of our need as those who have been recipients of great honor from the Lord God through the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ that you would move us to honor other people, other brothers and sisters in Christ like we should. And Father, for those that are here this morning that have not honored you as Lord and God of all creation, as the sovereign creator of them, of, of them and of their very souls, that Lord, I pray that you would convict them today of the truth and the reality of the living God and of the fact that every single one of us will one day stand before you and give an account of our lives. And there won't be any grading on a scale. And there won't be any empty, cheap grace. That the only salvation for any of us is in the costly grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I pray you move in our hearts this morning. I pray you make us to respond, Lord God, as we should. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Bow your head and close your eyes. I'm going to encourage you, beloved, to respond to the sermon in the way that you need to. To respond um, either with thanksgiving to the Lord for His work of grace in your heart or to repent of the places where the work of Christ where you need to be more sanctified. But I want to especially speak to you that are in these pews this morning who are in a place where you are not honoring God as God. And I want to speak to you about the truth of the gospel. And I want you to listen to me. Here's the truth. When you were born, when you were conceived in your mother's womb, you were conceived in sin. When you are born, you are born a sinner and an enemy with the Almighty God. You're born that way because of the sin of Adam, but it's not Adam's fault alone. By your life and by the way that you've lived and by the sin that you've committed, you've shown yourself to be a rebel against God. You've shown yourself to be in opposition to the Almighty King, to the one who's created you, to the one who's given you breath, and the one who's given you life. And you are in rebellion against Him, and you are unwilling to submit to Him and to His commandments. You believe that your own way is the right way. You, won't act, you might not actually say this, but in reality, in your heart, you think you're God and He isn't. And the truth is, your sin has put you in a place. It's put you in a place where you are under the just condemnation of Almighty God. Where you have no excuse. Where you can offer... No rationale or reasoning. You're under the just judgment of God. And when He returns, He will find you guilty of sin. He will find you guilty of rebellion against Him. And He will sentence you to an eternity in hell. Hell's not imaginary. It's not make-believe. Neither is heaven. They're real places. Populated by real people for an, for an eternity. 
as you are right now. You will not go to heaven. You'll go to hell. But you need to know that God has done what you cannot do. Praise God. God has sent His only Son. His perfect Son. His only begotten, well-pleasing Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world as a man. He put on Himself human flesh and is at the same time Almighty God and man without any confusion or mingling of those two natures. He is the God-man. And He has done what you could never do. He has lived a life of perfect obedience, absolute, perfect obedience to the law and to the will of Father God. A life of perfect righteousness. A, A life of perfect sinlessness. He has lived a life of perfect righteousness that you could not live. And then, on the day that was appointed before the foundation of the world, He gave Himself up to be crucified on the cross, and He died the death that you deserve. Not the physical death that you deserve, the spiritual death that you deserve. On the cross, He suffered completely and fully. The wrath of God, the the, the wrath of hell, the, the fury of God's hatred of sin, He endured upon Himself for all of the sins of everyone who would ever repent of their pride and repent of their rebellion, turning away from it and would believe and surrender themselves to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And then on the third day, He rose from the dead to prove that His death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead was sufficient to pay the debt of sin and that and to give us the righteousness that we need by which we stand before Almighty God, clothed in Christ. That's the good news of the gospel, but it's not something that just automatically is applied to everyone. What's demanded of you is this. You hear the gospel, you confess, and you repent of the sin that has put you under the condemnation of God. And you call upon Jesus Christ. And you ask Him to be your Savior and your Lord. And you believe in His perfect life, in His soul, in His, in His substitutionary death, in His soul-saving death and resurrection. You surrender yourself to Him once and for all as Savior and Lord. And you may have never heard the gospel before. This might be the first time that you've heard it. And I'm telling you, it's the truth. And you may never get to hear it again. This might be your last day on this earth. I'm saying to you, this is the most important thing you will ever hear. And your response to it determines the eternal destiny of your soul. And so if you're here this morning and you are not honoring Christ with your life, you're not honoring Almighty God, then repent and believe the gospel and be saved. And come and speak to one of our elders. Our elders are going to be down here sitting across the front. If you're a lady and you want to speak to a lady, Gretchen's down here, you can come speak to her. Take a moment, consider what you've heard, and then we're going to stand and we'll sing and be dismissed. God bless you.